0: Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. For listeners who have been tuning in regularly, you've probably noticed got this little spiel off the top where I'm asking people to go over to YouTube. I have a channel over there, life As a dot dot. And basically it's just highlights from the main audio versions, from the podcast versions of these talks that I have with these great guests. And the reason I'm plugging it so hard is that I think this content really does matter. And I wanna get it in front of people. I wanna get it in front of youth, people that are still undecided, who just don't know what they wanna do with their lives. And I think this platform, you No know, One YouTube, offers that opportunity to kind of get up close and personal with some of these guests in a different format. And if you're just not into audio, if you're not into podcasting as a whole, that's fine, that's okay. Well, you can still digest the content in a different way. I would encourage you, if you do know somebody who's looking for that career, looking for some ideas, direct them over to life as a Dot dot over on YouTube. You know, if they're into videos, they might just find what they're looking for over there. And while you are there, hey, I would always appreciate a like or subscribe. It's the best way to let that algorithm know that the content matters, that it should be put in front of others. Well, I do thank you for letting me ask this of you, but I think it's about time we get into today's episode. So today we're going to be looking at the field of LXD. Any idea what that is? Yeah, don't worry about it. We're gonna be breaking it down real quick. But just to give you a spoiler alert here, LXD is referring to learning experience designer. And this is somebody who's keyed in on the learning experience. A person might go on when they're interacting with a new product or service. And we have this great guest. Her name is Dr. Sonia Tiwari. She's at the top of her game within this field. And she breaks down what this profession is all about. She gives us a little bit more insight than what I just provided. And then also we get into, you know, some of the challenges of the work, some of the rewards. She even shares a couple of real world project examples that she's been part of. And we even get a look at how AI is flipping this industry around and where it could be going. So this conversation is one that you're not going to want to miss. There's so much insight contained within it that I think you're really going to like it. Well, I do want to get into it all with you, so why don't we? Let me more formally introduce her to you and we can get started. Dr. Sonia Tiwari is a learning experience designer who helps create children's educational products based on qualitative research as a consultant and educator. She is a PhD in learning, design, and technology, and has been invited as a speaker guest lecturer and adjunct professor at universities such as Penn State, California College of the Arts, and Carnegie Mellon University. Now, she also consults with education companies on how to design research-informed products for children, toys, games, DIY kits, AR, VR experiences, and other emerging formats current research explores the future of virtual influencers in children's educational media. So with all of this noted, here's my conversation with Dr. Sonia Tiwari. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: Yeah, excellent. Excellent. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You know, we were just speaking off air for a second there. That at times you have an idea of what some of these professions are all about, you know, and speaking with several different people, whether it's a nurse, whether it's a doctor, you, you have a base of knowledge to kind of work with. But what I'm really interested with this conversation is LXD. It's a, it's a topic that, quite honestly, I don't know a lot about and I don't think listeners have a, a base of knowledge for. So, yeah, like I said, I'm really excited to to get into this with you today. With that in mind, I do have this first segment lined up. It's something called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners know, it's a segment where I just read off a definition related to what the the guest does. Now, I will be honest here. I couldn't find anything for Learning Experience Designer, LXD, on Wikipedia. So I did have to do a bit of internet sleuthing. And I did find something from a source called My Learning World Online. So let me just read that off for you. And then maybe you can comment. Does that sound okay? Yeah, sure. All right. So here we go. Learning experience designer. A learning experience designer, LXD, is a professional who is responsible for creating engaging and compelling learning experiences used in schools and corporate training alike. This can involve anything from creating and designing courses and learning materials to developing assessment tools and evaluating the effectiveness of learning programs. There it is. First take. What do you think of that?
1: I think it's a pretty good definition. I'd say the only thing that needs to be unpacked a little more is the scope of what an LX designer can do. So usually people assume it's just courses and training or, you know, evaluation and everything in this strict, rigid academic sense. But I would say it's also very lighthearted and open-ended in the sense that a learning experience can take the form of an educational exhibit, a museum exhibit, or toys or games, uh, AR and VR experiences, basically anything that helps someone learn a specific skill or gain any specific knowledge.
0: Okay. All right. Now, how would this kind of connect up to UX, user experience design, that profession? You know, maybe you could compare and contrast that a little bit for us as well.
1: Sure. So there is a lot of overlap, especially in the way we do research, you know, conducting interviews, surveys, questionnaires, analyzing data or testing the products with users. That part overlaps. Mm -hmm. The difference is in the perspective. UX designers are typically just checking for usability issues and LX designers are focusing on the learning, how well Did someone learn from having used this product or service? And UX researchers and designers would use theories from human-computer interaction field mostly, like activity theory, distributed cognition, usability, heuristics, et cetera, with the goal that you know figure out the most intuitive and easy steps that a user can take to achieve something, like you know, checking your messages or setting up an alarm what are the different steps that you'll take to do those whereas learning experience designers take on the education lenses like theory of behaviorism constructionism all of that or socio emotional learning and really focusing on the the takeaway in context of learning so and and there are also some theoretical borrowing and sharing from the same knowledge base for example design thinking Is used in UX, it's used in LX, it's also used in engineering, uh, in even visual design. So I think it's both are very interdisciplinary fields. So they do have some shared vocabulary and then their own unique flavor.
0: Mm. No, thank you for that. I think that that helps clear things up. You know, I was uh, fortunate enough to have a user experience designer on the program a few months back. And it was interesting to hear certainly of what uh, that guest does, but I think it was helpful the way you broke it down as well to kind of compare and contrast that because it opens up a whole different world. You know, if you're interested in that type of work, well, there are several different types of disciplines within that world itself, whether it's LX or UX. So yeah, I thank you for that. You know, I know we are going to get into your history a little bit you know, in terms of what pulled you in there, but before we do that and to add some additional clarity, perhaps to uh, the work that you do. I do have this segment here, A Day in the Life. And maybe, you know, in the most general sense, you know, you kind of fill listeners in on what that's all about, like what types of jobs, what types of duties, responsibilities you might have.
1: Right. So again, because Alex Design is very broad, I'm not like a good representative of the full field, (laughs) but I'll share like a day in my life. I divide my week into four parts, which is research, teaching, outreach, and then upskilling. I, I devote like the biggest chunk three days a week to focus on my research, where I am collecting data, analyzing it, designing some educational products in collaboration with K 12 teachers, typically, because I focus on K 12 education. But then sometimes I have collaboration with higher education or companies. And they'll come up with a a challenge that they are having, uh, the the learners are having. And then I help co-design the solutions.
0: Sorry to interrupt there. Could you give like an example? What would be a problem?
1: Yeah. So there was one, uh, a microbiology course right before the pandemic. The professor used to teach uh, the microbial history of the earth and uh, he would place the different events on different walls of the classroom. So it was like a very in-person kind of experience. Mm. And then after the pandemic, he wanted to kind of like recreate that experience online, which is difficult because, you know, you can go online and do some card sorting, but then that freedom of walking around the classroom, uh, comparing some of like the geological events of the time, and then guessing that, hmm, this was, you know, the earth was really hot at the time what kind of microbial activities could have happened and so it was really hard for him to kind of recreate that experience mm. online and so they approached me to kind of redesign this experience for remote learning mm. and then the second challenge was the same like a simpler version of the same content was also being taught in the middle schools in the school district wow so the same content for two different audiences and i had Like limited time. So to figure out a way, you know, that it doesn't turn out to be something too childish that the adult learners might get bored and not too complex that, you know, kids may find it too challenging. So I ended up designing a game in Unity, which worked in the browser. So it was very accessible and it was called Microbe's Journey. And it was like a microbe character going through a journey of 5 billion years. And, you know, he's doing different things uh, in in each year and, and there was like a deck of cards that people could place in different sections of a timeline that kind of mimicked the classroom environment of like four walls and four timelines so they were able to pick and place those cards along the timeline which gave them that sense of okay this even happened first I'm guessing this this would be the next intuitively the next thing that should happen you know, because if, if the geological events of the time, if the earth is too hot or too cold, it's very unlikely that, you know, any new organisms would be born. We, you know, need a certain environment to live. Uh, and so they got these clues from what else was happening at the time. And then based on that, they had to guess the microbial events. So I, I was able to, you know, translate the in-person event online and. By quick contrast, I'll give you another project example. It was a Montessori school who wanted to develop some kind of gamified experience, but the Montessori philosophy is that not introducing screens to kids in school. So they wanted it all offline. The the first natural instinct for me was to think of a toy. But then also I was thinking, you know, toys are so open-ended, free play, so Children may not be able to get the curriculum in an organized way, the way if they used an app, which, you know, has a navigation it tells you do this next, do that next. So I worked with a local textile artist to create like a soft book. So it was made out of fabric and it had like each page had a different curriculum goal. Like if it's about reading the clock, the analog clock, so it had like a moving parts of a clock that kids could move and it had some instruction embroidered on the side and it's all on my website if anyone wants to look at it yeah uh, but yeah so it was the it's as if the entire game was recreated in textile form very tactile and hands on So that's why it's like, it's hard to give like one representative example of everything. But yeah, each learning goal is so different. The audience is different. Their needs and limitations are different. But it's very exciting to, to think in context of the problem.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it just screams out to me like a lot of creativity. A lot of creativity there but also too what's interesting about it is you're coming from you know background within the you know, science and, and the behaviorism and then how people you know interact with things and then what's going to be the most effective way to present information to elicit responses or elicit you know some sort of reaction in people so it's, it's this combination of one like just a, a set of like creative ideas here but then also too coming from the scientific background as well and then you know, utilizing that and leveraging that to uh, to hopefully create some great outcomes. But those are really, really, yeah, like I said, fascinating. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. And I know I did interrupt you there in terms of a day in the life. I don't know if you if you've lost your, your train of thought there in terms of some of the other things you might be engaged um, with.
1: But Yeah, I mean, just uh, the, the four things. So I spend most of the time on research, then I uh, spend a day teaching. My students are Masters and doctoral students in education. So they are typically either K 12 researchers or teachers. And then I spend one day on outreach, which could look very different, like writing articles on LinkedIn or collaborating with school teachers or the local school district, or like, you know, volunteering for American Toy Association or San Francisco Women Leaders Association, where there are a lot of educators in that community. So, yeah. And and then if I don't have anything scheduled for a while, then I, I do try to upskill. You know, I take stock of, you know, what am I really struggling with, where I need more practice. And I look up a LinkedIn tutorial or a course on Domestica, and then I try to address that.
0: All right. Well, I thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's really insightful. And I think it paints a really nice picture of of the work that you do and, and some of your your interests as well, which kind of allows us to slide into this next segment here, a pathways one. And here I typically just explore how the guests made their way into their present day profession. And in terms of, again, the work that you do, you know, I, I'm getting a sense here that, you know, being curious minded is a big part of what you do. And I'm curious whether or not that was a part of your personality and your makeup, you know, from a young age and that might have, you know, led you into this work. But maybe you could shed some light on on how you ended up in Alex.
1: Yeah, curiosity, for sure. And also creativity, like as long as I can remember, I just love to draw and imagine stories, characters. And, and I also kind of feel like everyone is like that as kids, yeah. you kind of just lose it on the way, right? right. So um, I was fortunate that I had a very supportive family. And uh, even though I grew up in India, where I think engineering and medicine are the go-to career pathways. Mm-hmm. I kind of followed my sister into film school where I got the opportunity to just, you know, be creative, think about story more in depth. And then I realized that, you know, live action wasn't really my thing because I want like way too imaginary things and characters. So mm-hmm. then I was drawn to animation. So I got my master's in animation and just being in the Bay Area because I I did my Masters from Academy of Art in San Francisco. So just just being in that area, there were a lot of gaming companies there. okay. so I, I wouldn't say that I was as you know since a very young age, I was a gamer that wasn't my a big part of my identity. It was more just geographically, there were a lot of yeah. game studios. So I ended up working as a game artist. And there, I kind of felt like research was used as a marketing ploy that, you know, after everything was designed, it was like, oh, parents love our product and your kids will get smarter if they play two hours a day. just felt not true or not really backed by facts as much or the facts seemed kind of made up.
0: Mm. (laughs) A little warped, Um, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and not to say that there are not any ethical researchers in the gaming industry. Of course there are, but overall it just felt like shouldn't people who are designing this stuff have an understanding of the thinking behind it also? And that's where I decided that, okay, I'm going to look at the, the behind the scenes, the reasoning. And so I pursued a PhD in learning design and technology, where I focused on children's media and like just just trying to unpack the thinking behind design decisions.
0: What What drew you towards children's media in particular?
1: I think even as an adult I enjoyed watching children's media (laughs) it's just an interest I I feel like children's media is way more creative imaginative and and it made me feel safe honestly Mm -hmm. to the way I grew up it was kind of an unsafe neighborhood and I, I feel like in in adult media there are very few safe spaces you know there's there's violence in the smallest of things yeah um and i i loved the especially the early education media experts kind of back it right and they make sure there's no inappropriate content there there's no Mm. violence there so it just felt like a safe space personally Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah yeah no i can appreciate that yeah definitely definitely okay well again i do thank you for sharing all of that and maybe we could continue this discussion in another segment in Q&A discovery and kind of continue this back and forth. And I would like to get back into your work within LX. And I understand that you have worked as an adjunct professor at some top universities within the LXD space. You also consult for education-based companies, which again, design products and services for children. And you speak on the topic of LXD. So you're, you're quite active. You're quite busy within this whole realm. But maybe you could tell us a little bit more about some of the work that you do. I mean, you explained some of the examples of of some of the projects you've been involved with, but is there anything else you'd like to share on some of your activities?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think no matter how different the audience is, I think the broader process is very similar. Like first you do a needs analysis of what's basically needed for the project because Mm -hmm. there's no one universal solution to all kind of learning challenges. So really trying to understand who you're designing for, what do they exactly need, where are they struggling, and what might help them in the best possible way, testing out a few potential solutions, then picking the best one and developing it. Hmm. So in terms of um, like as a professor, it's very straightforward. I design a course, I help design the LMS that students will be using, and it's it's very straightforward in other cases where it's a museum exhibit or designing a summer a science summer camp it's more challenging in the sense that it's it's more hands-on activities there's a big group of kids there are multiple facilitators so then providing them the training that you know you're part of this team who will then help children as the end users learn something so then there's like this pre-training involved So yeah, it's, it's very diverse. But yeah, overall, it's important to understand the context really thoroughly, then create a few prototypes of a few different options, potential solutions, test them out with a smaller group of people, and then launch it to the bigger audience.
0: I'm sure this varies, you know, project to project, but to what degree are you embedding yourself into one single project? For example, one month to six months to eight months, like how would things vary?
1: I would say... For me it has mostly been short-term projects. Okay. 1 to 3 months typically. But yeah, like again, like as part of my teaching, if if I'm teaching for a full semester, that's like 6 months. Yeah. But most of these smaller projects are anywhere between 1 to 3 months.
0: Okay. Would that be the norm within the industry or is that just something that you've been drawn to?
1: I think that's just my thing. I'm I'm dyslexic and it's hard for me to maintain like deep focus on something okay. for way too long. So I I tend to be drawn to these projects where within a few months I'll see some kind of outcome and I can share it with the community as a resource. Yeah. But I, again like during my PhD of course it was like a really long-term commitment mm-hmm. so <laughs> uh, but uh, again like I I I try not to, because especially in the era of AI, things are moving so fast, you know, being in too engrossed in one really long term project that no one is going to see for several years. It just Mm. doesn't make sense anymore.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Probably the cycles for this, like they demand shorter projects in in a way just to to stay current, to stay up to date. Otherwise, you're right. I mean, a couple of years (laughs) within the day and age we're living in right now, it would be dated. Yeah. I have this other question as well. Like a lot of industries, you know, the the educational space is rapidly transforming, especially when it comes to children's products and service offerings. And we're just speaking about this topic of technology, ostensibly, the way that things are moving, as we just said, is just going at such a rapid pace that like, my question for you as a professional is how do you personally keep up with all of this information? You know, when it's coming out so quickly, and even sometimes maybe your clients aren't always fully up to date, you know, where do you go to, to one, get ideas, you know, in terms of what technological capabilities there are, and then also two, I guess, like just some of the perspectives on this technology, you know, AI is one thing that we're going to get into later. I mean, there's certainly a lot of promise there, but also there's a lot of ramifications for the use of it that we don't even fully grasp or fully understand just yet. So again, my question is centering on like where do you get this information? And then also to like perspectives on it so that you know when you are advising a client on a potential use that things aren't going to go south, maybe on this within six months or 12 months.
1: Right. So in terms of just getting the information, I one of those old souls, I still read the news. <laughs> so I do keep up with like the new releases. I've set up Google alerts on. Uh, education technology related keywords so I do also get those alerts by email if there's like a new tool that's gaining a lot of popularity I also follow a lot of ed tech kind of influencers on LinkedIn so usually Mm. if if I miss something they bring it up to my radar Uh, so that's like that's how I get the information and also reading academic journals which have a shorter cycle that who, who publish within a few months so it's it's more current for academia, three months is sort of <laughs>
0: current. <laughs> right.
1: Um, so yeah, I, I read those, and then in terms of like working with clients and recommending tools, you're right that it is overwhelming. There's so much going on. Like a few months ago, it was just ChatGPT. Now there's like thousand variations of AI tools. So now I've learned to think in reverse. Instead of thinking these are the latest tools. How do I use them? I look back at my process, reflect on it, and think, where am I struggling the most? And can AI solve that problem? And especially processes that involve mindless work, something that can be easily automated. That part, I look for that, okay, is there a tool for this specific thing? For example, being dyslexic and in academic research where there's just way too much reading involved, (laughs) uh, I was really looking for a tool that, you know, I wish I could like talk to my PDFs, a PDF whisperer, you know, because I knew I read this, I knew I made some notes, but it's so hard to go back and forth to summarize what was that again. And so, you know, when Google Bard launched that feature of being able to upload a document and then copy.ai and other tools. Now there are several ways to communicate with a PDF document, including your notes. So that part I like. And then anywhere where AI is kind of trying to take over the deep thinking work, that's where I'm cautious that, you know, sure, I can generate a few different outlines for a LinkedIn article and then, you know, refine it, write the whole thing and co-create with AI in that sense. But if I see myself or my clients, you know, kind of completely relying on the meat of the work, the deep part of the work, outsourcing it to AI, that's problematic. So that's kind of my rubric of selecting the tool. Is it solving a problem? And then is it automating something mundane that does not require your own intellectual power?
0: I got it. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear that. Really quickly, too, the point you just raised there in terms of some of the conversations you might have with clients relating to AI, are you at times encountering clients where they're wanting to go deeper into AI and and wanting to outsource more of that information and let AI do the bulk of some of the tasks? Are you having to have these conversations? Well, hold on a second. For sure.
1: It is happening. I mean, there's like an AI in education community, especially AI tutoring is big. And, you know, some people assume that they're going to replace teachers, but then, you know, I have to go back to this conversation that, you know, no one can replace an actual teacher. Uh, AI can, again, what is a teacher's mundane list of tasks? You know, if there is a quiz that has a very straightforward rubric and you need to grade it, sure, let the AI do it. Or it's like uh, taking attendance or uh, taking notes, recording notes, transcribing notes. Those are the kind of things that, sure, help the teacher out so that she has her time free for helping students who need it, rather than, you know, getting sucked in the systematic problems. So yeah, that's the kind of back and forth I have to constantly have that, you know, no one is going to pay for a subscription if you say that, oh, you don't need any human, just here, let this AI chatbot educate your kids But if you say that it's, I mean, it's good for marketing to not outsource everything on AI. And I I love that, you know, Grammarly or Copy.ai, even Canva, when they, even in their advertising, they don't say that you can be a non-designer and suddenly become a genius. They say that, oh, if you're an existing designer and just want to speed up your workflow, Here are some tools. So I guess it's been working both ways, genuinely and also in terms of marketing. Yeah,
0: that's what I think what makes it right now a really interesting time is we have this, this sort of feeling out period of like, what do we want to be leveraging AI for? And there's so many different opinions, so many different views on this where people are all in on it and and have no qualms about outsourcing all of the functions to AI, whereas others, you know, like like yourself, professionals in this space that are like, well, hold on, there's certain tasks, like you've mentioned a few times over some of these mundane sort of tasks. Yes, maybe we can allow AI to do that. But there's certain things that we don't want AI to be handling. And uh, yeah, I think that's really, really insightful. I have this other question here. And this is kind of returning to you in the work that you do. I can see like from the this point in our conversation, how fulfilling it could be on several different levels. But I think it'd still be interesting all the same to hear it from you. Like what value are, are you deriving from the work that you're involved within?
1: I think it's it's very lucky to be in a position where you see the outcomes up close. For example, a UX designer who was who part of like a 300-person team launched a product. And then, you know, later on, the marketing team will... Receive the results from surveys or feedback that person on an individual level doesn't get to see the impact, yeah. And it's also hard to measure that you know what was my specific role in it because it was a big team. So, in, in working as a consultant or as a one on one mentor educator, it's just very, I feel very grateful that I get to see the outcome, I get the direct thank you notes, or even just seeing. That a child was not able to do a certain thing before. And then, after using a product or playing a game or something, they now can. And it's a very fulfilling feeling. And there was this quote by Frederick Douglass. So, Frederick Douglass said that it's easier to build strong children than fix broken men. And I always just revert to this thing because even reflecting on my own childhood, you know, going to a very Orthodox girls' convent school, living in kind of a unsafe neighborhood. I just felt like so much of that has impacted in both good and bad ways the, the person who I am today. And I'm sure that's true for everyone, right? Our childhood has such a big impact on who we turn out to be later on. And so that is what draws me to the field that, you know, young children and then seniors, they are our vulnerable population. And the people in the middle, you know, our age group who are in the prime of their career, they can help themselves. There are a lot of resources for them, but for these vulnerable populations, I think they can get more, they deserve more help and attention.
0: Mm, Yeah, I really like that. I really like that. And also too, when I was listening to you explain that, I was thinking about some of the examples you were speaking about earlier, some of the projects you've been involved in and... You know, you, you could be stimulating somebody's mind or setting them down a pathway of their own exploration, you know, of, of you know getting curious about something that, that there's value in that as well. You know, it could be just one project that you've worked on for a museum or some of these other ones that you just mentioned that that really just lights somebody's minds up, you know, and really inspires them to do something else. So again, yeah, I can see I can see the value in, in what you're doing and as opposed to maybe if you're working on these big projects within, you know, UX, like you said, you're one of 100 people working on a project, it's really tough to kind of trace your involvement in it. But when you're like right at the ground level, and you're designing how children are going to be interacting with this exhibit with this product with this toy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's different.
1: Yeah, yeah, I didn't mean to say it's better. Definitely just different because I know, you know, like bigger products, take bigger teams and have bigger impact. Versus like for me, even though I do get the individual feedback, it's also the scale of impact is also smaller. It's like one school at a time or one district at a time versus these larger products can globally impact learners. Yeah, Yeah,
0: but it's a really nice distinction, though, I think for people that might be interested in either UX or LX, what drives them and where they want to place themselves within that world. So, yeah, I really appreciate that. I really like that. Well, I do have this other segment here—a water cooler story segment—and here I just ask guests to indulge listeners with a story related to their work. So I'm really uh, interested to to hear what you have for us today.
1: I would say I had a game design student once, and he had this amazing portfolio of sketches and like a nice storyline. And because he wasn't from education background, he didn't realize that the story had so much like potential for being like a self help type of game. And just just through like a five, 10 minute discussion, I was like, have you thought about just, you know, repackaging this game as an educational game because the elements are all there. There's a strong curriculum here. Each character is kind of sharing a different lesson in a way. And so over the course of a week, he was able to redesign it. And to the point that now he is a professional educational game designer, and i didn't have much to do with it it was just like a 5 minute critique yeah but it's been 2 3 years and he still sends like thank you notes every no way. holiday <laughs> no way. and it's been so heartwarming to to know that you know even just like a 5 minute feedback or yeah. just hearing people out can can help them especially because in the university system the typical academic system Rewards are based on assignments or quizzes and, you know, they don't really measure your potential. There's no way to, it's such an abstract concept that, you know, the directions that you can take, the skills that you can have, there is no quiz or test that can measure that. That can only come from the the professors, the mentors expressing themselves and then making students feel valued for Mm. their uniqueness instead of trying to Constantly just critiquing them yeah. in a negative way. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So yeah. Yeah,
1: that has been really rewarding for me. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. I can definitely see that. The moment, a five minute conversation, you know, of, of an in depth sort of look at what somebody's doing and, and just sharing you know, your honest opinion or giving some feedback that's, you know, helpful and just presenting new ideas, right? Yeah. And just set somebody's life up in such a different way. And uh, it sounds like to me, I mean, with <laughs> the way that story is told, that. Yeah, I think you did have some impact there. I do have one last segment here, a crystal ball segment. And as the name implies, we're looking towards the future trends predictions, so on and so forth. And I do want to return to this topic of AI and something you've mentioned already, you know, some of your outreach, you do get on LinkedIn, you are creating blog posts. And there was one that I was reading, and I think the title was Ideas for Designing AI-Powered Learning Experiences for Children. And it was absolutely fascinating for one. But you write about a few different topics here, things like intelligent content, intelligent tutors, which you've already mentioned, and a host of other AI powered possibilities. And I thought it'd be interesting for listeners to kind of gain a little bit more perspective on this world of AI as it pertains to education and you know, moving forward. Maybe you could fill us in on that.
1: Sure. So I think one of the biggest applications of AI in education could be personalized learning, because typically, a professor or school teachers assign a classroom there's like one curriculum there are some adjustments that you make like the individualized uh, learning plan or you know the the teacher can be aware and just help out students who need more help but that's a lot of pressure on the teacher to kind of think of the customizations and then work with each child one-on-one so AI can definitely help with that and sort of readjust the curriculum for, adapted to the levels of different students. And then again, I think that's the kind of outsourcing that teachers can it, it can free up a lot of useful time for teachers to do other more meaningful things. Then there can be intelligent tutors where maybe the the educators themselves can create a knowledge base. So is their ideas not generic chat GPD pulling from all over the internet? They can create their own knowledge base and then have, a chatbot or an, an intelligent tutor use that method to help students in between the teacher's interventions. That's another application. Then I think gamification has always been there. But again, AI gives you the power of customizing that gamification experience. You know, Certain characters or storylines unlock for certain conditions, and those conditions can be on the go, quickly evaluated by AI which was difficult to achieve before. And then even in AR and VR now, with generative AI, it's also possible to create content just on a few keywords, being able to design an entire 3D environment. And again, like, because I also have a background in art, I stand in solidarity with the artist community when they complain that, you know, blatantly ripping off an artist's visual style to create mockups is unfair. So I I am still, I guess I'm not the expert in that area, but I, I do stand with my artist friends. And I currently make all of my art myself in Adobe Illustrator, old school. Wow. <laughs> and I plan to continue doing it that way because I, I feel like there's still the issue of continuity. You, you have to understand, like if you read a good book, the thing that draws you in are interesting characters. You know them that, oh, in chapter one, this happened to them now this is happening i understand the nuances ai doesn't have that kind of history and context of a character so it's like a one off illustration but you have to be the artist to to truly understand that character and redraw it in a you know different poses and emotions so but the application is available there maybe in medical profession where it's not about taking over someone's creativity but really exploring how Different systems work within the body. Maybe in that context, it's really good to have AR and VR. I, I don't have a specific use case in mind, but I do know that in healthcare, AI has helped in terms of visualizing certain things. Then there's also speech recognition, which I, I think that's really amazing for translation because there is a lot of uh, informative content online, and there are no. Translated captions or even like the, the ability to lip sync in different languages, you know, certainly like you being abroad, I'm sure that you can visualize the use cases more. The so speech recognition, I think it's a good, but uh, again, the caution here is just literal translation versus translating with context. I'm not sure how much AI can do that, the full context. So I still feel like the People who are translators by profession and voiceover artists, they are still going to be there because I don't think AI can ever capture the the depth of emotion. The full context, and yeah. The con- yeah, yeah, the cultural context. So many words, you know, their literal translation won't make sense in other languages. So, yeah, I, it's like. I think for talking head type of videos where there's just information dissemination I think the AI speech recognition is great. Then in terms of there's assessment and grading again like if there's if the teacher can set up a rubric and AI can use that as the criteria to grade that can free up some time for the teacher and then then they can take a second look for personalized you know human feedback as well. So, yeah, I think those are some kind of broad level applications of AI in education. There's, I'm sure by the time you launch the podcast, there will be like 10 other applications.
0: <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, a couple of things stand out to me there. I mean, one is just like every now and then I get this feeling like the future, we're living in the future. Absolutely. You know, like when, when you hear these types of things like, geez, five years ago, 10 years ago, even two years ago, you'd think like, oh, that's that's way down the road. But here we are. Like that, that's on our doorstep right now. And then also too, like when considering this this notion of education and, and teaching and whatnot, like a future job description for somebody within that profession is almost going to have to be a technologist, you know, like aside from just the the teaching skills and, and methodology that one has to to learn and go through. There has to be that element of technology and, and not just a, a small part, but you know, by the sounds of it, a, a big portion of their learnings are going to have to be derived from technology, AI, and, and and all of that world. It's a sign of the times, I guess. Things are changing, but uh, fascinating all the same. I do have this one other question here, as far as AI and moving forward within your world, within Alex. How do you foresee the impact it is currently having, or is going to have, or even could have on your work itself? Because again, like I could see how. Maybe some people might think, well, there's going to be certain elements of this person's job that we can kind of just cut out or we can, you know, we can augment in some way by using AI. What's the chatter within your industry, within your space on AI as as far as it affecting your work?
1: I think there's like anything, there's the good and the bad. The good thing is that now AI can be a co-creator. That's what I look at AI as. And you can try to create an ethical version of that collaboration. So, like using your own original knowledge base or art to train the AI versus ripping off another artist could be one ethical use case. So, uh, in that sense, I kind of feel like a lot of uh, LX designers have been able to speed up their workflows with the help of AI, especially outlining stuff, outlining articles, outlining larger articles, dissertation type of things, or. If you're designing an app or a toy, then just in the brainstorming session, getting all the generic, stereotypical ideas out of the way in an instant, so then you can choose from that. Hmm, no, this sounds too basic. Maybe I can combine these ideas to make something unique. So that raw material to work with that has definitely helped people in LX to uh, speed up their workflow. Where it has been bad is that I kind of see researchers especially lx researchers writing complete manuscripts with ai and it shows but somehow it still gets published (laughs) so that kind of like just overflowing of unnecessary pointless content and then also you know there are people selling uh, prompts on their websites or on linkedin that is i think again like a a ripoff of the common public that you know it's like if someone said i'll sell you like five google search terms it's weird like it's designed to be so intuitive that you don't need to be a prompt engineer it's like it's not a profession so looking into the the crystal ball i i can i can't predict which jobs might exist but i can be sure that prompt engineering is not going to be <laughs> a exactly job one of them. because it's, yeah, it's, it's designed to be intuitive that it's not a job. That's the yeah. whole goal that you don't have to be some kind of engineer to get use out of these tools. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the good and bad of AI in education.
0: Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Well, it's been a really, really engaging conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I mean, from start to finish, it's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, I can't thank you enough for you know all of your insights and, and all the stories and everything else that you shared today.
1: Thank you for inviting me. And I am a big fan of the website. I've learned so much about other careers that I had no idea about. So thank you for including me.
0: Well, for those interested in learning more about Dr. Tiwari and her work, You can check her out at her portfolio website, SoniaTiwari.com, and also on LinkedIn. I mean, for reference, all this information, including links, will be included in the show notes. And also, hey, I mean, if you like today's show, please be sure to tell a friend and share. You can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcast. And then you can head on over to YouTube. We do have that channel I mentioned off the top, Life As A, where I have video highlights of the conversations that we have here in the audio version. And finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.